So much great Advertising Week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Warren Haynes. Warren is one of the true cornerstones of American music. He's been a seminal part of some of the most important bands America's ever produced. The Allman Brothers, Government Mule, and he's been in and out with various members of the Grateful Dead family for a long period of time. He's got his own band, the Warren Haynes Band, and has collaborated with a long, long list of people, some of which we'll touch on today. Uh, and we are just so thrilled to have you, Warren. So welcome. Uh, thanks. Glad to be here. Great. So Warren, I, I want to talk about uh, the Christmas Jam, which I know has been near and dear to your heart since you started it so many years ago. Uh, and people often don't talk about how charitable folks in the music industry are. You were just here in New York, back on stage at a place that I know is meaningful to you, the Beacon Theater, uh, just a few days ago. And I think that was probably your first time on stage in quite some time. I'd love to hear about what that must have been like playing uh, on stage with Keith Richard and his band, and what it must have been like to be back on stage at the Beacon Theater. felt really great to be back not only uh, on stage in general but at the Beacon Theater which is the place that I've played more than any other uh, I've played the Beacon somebody told me it's between 275 and 300 times I don't know what the exact number would be but it's home away from home you know and so just stepping onto that stage is comfortable stepping backstage is comfortable uh, know everybody there. It's just a, a, a really good feeling. And to be part of a charity show that A is a, a great charity event. Love Rocks is a, a wonderful a, a event. I've done it uh, quite a few times now, almost every year. And the great lineup with Keith Richards and the expensive winos getting back together, and Mavis Staples and, and Hosier. And uh, there was this this woman, Celise Henderson, who I really like a lot, who's a new uh, singer-guitar player. kind of brought the house down but it, it's it's just a wonderful event and it, it just felt great you know it was the first time being back 
So Warren, I, I, I've been doing a lot of reading of, of, about you. It's such an interesting life. And I'd love to go back to the early days in Asheville. And I read somewhere that one of your early heroes was James Brown. James Brown was probably my first hero or my first musical hero uh, anyway. You know, I had two older brothers and they uh, both had great taste in music and still do. And, and they both were really into to records. One of my brothers uh, wound up being a collector to the point that he started his own record store. Uh, but when we were growing up, uh, it was really all about soul music, you know, uh, the Four Tops and the Temptations and Wilson Pickett and uh, Sam and Dave. But James Brown was kind of like the first thing that all of us went crazy for. And uh, it was it was just amazing. I, the, the way that music hit me and I would sit in my room and try to sing along with it and, and stuff, you know, uh, I think prior to that I got a, a little bit of that same feeling from hearing black gospel music on the radio when I must have been like six, six years old or something. But then a couple of years later, when I heard James Brown, it was the same feeling, but amplified times 10, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I, I would have to credit James as being a, a huge inspiration. So one of the artists that you mentioned that was on the beacon on the Love Rock show with you, last week was Mavis Staples. Yeah. And uh, Mavis is the last of the surviving, the three sisters. And of course their father, Pop Staples, who beyond, you know, real music fans is, is somewhat lost in history, which I think is, is a tragedy. I'd love to get your take on sort of where the early great blues artists, and I know that people like Robert Johnson and Sun House and Elmore James were also big influences on you and gospel music and though that early sort of birth of rock and roll where that all came together and I would think growing up in the south that that really came together for you quite loudly and in a really resonant way. Yeah because you know growing up uh, then I was born in 1960 so growing up at that time in the south regional music was still very important. You know, the people in Asheville and that part of North Carolina uh, had a certain way of playing and singing that was local and regional. And if you traveled three hours to Atlanta, it was similar but different. If you kept going south to Mississippi, Alabama, it was even more different. Uh, and so we were all learning a kind of regional approach to music and, and he, learning from local musicians and, and in a lot of cases, people that no one ever heard of, you know. Um, the black gospel music that I heard on the radio uh, was so moving. I didn't make the connection for a few more years that that's where the blues came from. You know, uh, the, uh, black gospel music turned into the blues when it started being uh, the same sort of melodies and chord progressions and nuances, but with uh, uh, barroom type lyrics and, and campfire type lyrics, you know. Uh, and of course, that paved the way for rock and roll. Uh, so it was, you know, for someone like me, I, I discovered 
soul music, then rock music. And then when I heard B.B. Uh, King, there was something special about that. But it was really when I started hearing that Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton and Johnny Winter and people like that were all listening to Freddie King and Albert King and Sunhouse and Robert Johnson and Muddy Waters and Helen Wolf and Elmore James. So I was like, oh, I better go check that stuff out. So it was kind of moving backwards like a family tree, you know. And then what you discover is you get intrigued by who who they listen to, you know. And so you keep moving backwards and backwards and backwards. And it's a, it's a wonderful way to discover where it all came from because I think we're all amazed at how long uh, a lot of this stuff has been around that we thought started with so-and-so and it didn't, it goes way back before. I'm glad you mentioned Albert and Freddie King also because B.B., uh, of course, with good reason, has such incredible notoriety. But it's been said that if you listen to the Three Kings, you learn everything you need to know about the history of American music. And I'd love to get your reflections on the Three Kings. Well, it's been said by me because I am a strong believer in that. I had a guitar teacher uh, named Andy Hunter, and he was a, a great blues guitar player in Asheville. And I only took lessons for a really short period of time. And he encouraged me to be self-taught because he was self-taught and he could see how uh, inspired and enthusiastic I was. Uh, but one of the things that he told me is, if you only listen to the Three Kings, there's a whole world of music there to discover. Freddie King, B.B. King, and Albert King. And so that that sunk deep to me. That That's something that always stayed with me. And to this day, those are, are three of my absolute favorites. And, you know, like Freddie King, uh, I always tell people that if Freddie didn't play guitar, he'd still be one of my favorite singers. He's such an amazing voice. Uh, and Albert, uh, you know, for people that, that don't know, Albert King played left-handed. He was a huge influence on Jimi Hendrix. He was absolutely the biggest influence on Stevie Ray Vaughan. But going back, he influenced Eric Clapton and Dwayne Allman and all these people. So I always tell people that Albert King influenced rock and roll more than any other blues guitar player because his style was a little more crazy, a little more outlandish. And, and not only that, everybody else, you can trace their history and see where they got it from. But it kind of starts with Albert. Nobody played like that before him. And it's always intrigued me. I've never found one instance where you could go back before Albert King and hear somebody play that way. And that, to me, that's, you know, that puts him as this unique, uh, amazing part of rock and roll history. That's great. I'm glad we got to talk about Albert and Freddie. So you've got a long uh, affiliation, association, and a guitar named after you by the Gibson Company and, and the name Les Paul, which is a magic name. And you might recall Warren for years later in his life, Les Paul played every week here in New York. 
at a oh, great yeah. club, Fat Tuesday. And uh, that was one of the great joys to get to go see Les. Could we talk about Les Paul, the 1958 Les Paul, and your long association with Gibson, which is really quite unique and quite special? Well, uh, let's start with uh, Les Paul at Fat Tuesdays. Uh, I actually was able to experience that. I went to, uh, to see him one night uh, at Fat Tuesdays, and he invited me up on stage to, to sit in with him. And he was uh, uh, so gracious, and he was still playing uh, amazingly well. Uh, and I remember before he brought me up, he made this little speech to the audience about how he doesn't like, uh, or at, at that time and through most of his life, a lot of modern music. You know, he he would kind of downplay the importance of a lot of modern music. And he, he was talking about how there's not a lot going on these days that he's really impressed by. And he said that... Uh, the other day he heard a song on the radio and he said, who is that? That's really good. And somebody said, oh, that's the Allman Brothers. And he said, I like that. That's really good. And so he was introducing me as a part of the Allman Brothers band. Uh, but he was so gracious. And when I got up on the stage to play, I didn't have a guitar. So I played Lou Paulo's guitar. Um, and we played Sea Jam Blues by Duke Ellington. And I would play a solo and I'd play another solo and I'd play another solo. And then he just kept going, signaling for me to keep going, keep going, keep going. And it was kind of, he was taunting me, but in a loving, humorous sort of way. Uh, but it was a huge highlight for me. I, you know, it's kind of engraved in my brain. And of course, his son, uh, Rusty, filmed all that stuff. And so I, I gave him my address and a few months later a, a video of me playing with Les Paul shows up at my house you know it's a it was quite an amazing experience but Les Paul the guitar you know like a lot of my favorite guitar players played Les Pauls and I just always loved that sound Dwayne Allman uh, Peter Green uh, it just had this this big, huge sound that sounded like a, a, a really powerful voice singing to you. And I, I just always loved that, but I couldn't afford one for most of my life. Uh, and when I finally could, it became my guitar of choice. So years later, when I joined the Allman Brothers, you know, standing next to Dick, Dickie Betts for all those years, uh, and then eventually myself and, and Derek Trucks, uh, I felt like the, the Les Paul was the right guitar for that music, and it became just part of my sound. And, and I realized at some point why I gravitated toward that sound, and it was because I wanted my guitar sound to be similar to my singing voice. When I would hear B.B. King or Bonnie Raitt, uh, their guitar and their voice sounded like the same thing. And so I realized that that's kind of what I was searching for. And, uh, and then when I met Leslie West, we talked about that as well. You know, somebody asked him, Why, where'd you get that huge guitar sound? He's like, I'm a 
I'm a big guy. I got a big voice. I need a big sound. And, you know, and, and I thought it makes, it makes total sense. I could never envision me singing the way that I sing and then playing with like a, 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 a thinner, brighter kind of Telecaster, Stratocaster kind of sound, which is a wonderful sound and one that I use from time to time and one that a lot of my favorite guitar players utilize, but it just never made sense to me. Uh, so years later, when Gibson said they wanted to do a signature model guitar, I was always allergic to the idea because uh, Les Paul is Les Paul. So I didn't want there to be a signature Warren Haynes Les Paul because it felt weird, you know, because there's only one Les Paul. So we, we talked about it for years. And then eventually when we could make one that was different and unique enough, uh, I agreed to it. Well, what a thrill. I, I was also very lucky to see Les a number of times at Fat Tuesday. And actually, the night I asked my wife to get married, Les Paul helped me propose to my wife. Ah. And I called Rusty and Les and, you know, someone like that, you don't put words in their mouth. You let them, <laughs> you know, and it was a magical night almost 30 years ago. So married just almost as long as you. Um, and uh, Warren, so many things to talk about, but one of the things I'd like to touch on, I loved um, your solo work and the band that you did with Railroad Earth, I think probably six or seven years ago, which I think is just a fantastic record. You talk about songwriters and the power of storytelling and now how music has an ability to transport you to somewhere else. And at a very young age, you were writing songs uh, including a song that became a huge hit, I think recorded by Garth Brooks. You were probably in your late teens, maybe barely sniffing 20. Where did that songwriting, where did that come from? Did it come from your brothers, from growing up in Asheville? Where do you think that dedication to the craft came from? Well, I, I was always kind of smitten with the whole story song uh, thing. I don't know at what age, but my earliest memory, uh, one of my earliest musical memories at all was sitting in a, my dad's car, hearing uh, the sounds of silence by Simon and Garfunkel on the radio. And, and I must have been six years old. And I had no idea what the lyrics meant, but something made the hair on my neck stand up and it, I guess the melodies and just the, the overall recording and performance of, of that tune. And then as I would get older and understand what it was about, it was like, wow, that's, that's one of the heaviest things I've, I've ever heard. Um, one of my brothers listened a lot to Bob Dylan and to Simon and Garfunkel and to a lot of uh, folk music and singer songwriter music. So, it was a perfect time as I was getting a little older to discover, you know, uh, even the more contemporaries like James Taylor and Jackson Brown and, and people who were fantastic singer songwriters. So I went through this phase where I just started really immersing myself in uh, that sort of world. And, and it uh, coincidentally was at a time that there was a, a little club in Asheville called Caesar's Parlor. And they had a tiny little stage. You couldn't fit a whole band on there. But a lot of singer songwriters, a lot of bluegrass, a lot of folk music. 
And so I discovered when I was 14 that I could sneak into Caesars uh, and bury myself over in the corner and watch. And they, you know, it was against the law, but I wasn't drinking and they, they knew that I was kind of intrigued by it all. And so uh, they let me get away with it. And, and so I started going back all the time. And I befriended some of the, the artists and the singer songwriters and eventually the staff. And then one night somebody said, hey, the kid plays guitar and let's get him up to play. And so I got up and, and played some blues uh, uh, with another guitar player. And at that point, I was like hooked. Uh, I, I wanted to do that all the time. So I, I hung out there every week. Uh, every weekend I would go there and watch all these people. And, and there were singer songwriters like Ray Sisk and Malcolm Holcomb and uh, Larry Rhodes that were doing other people's songs, but also doing their own songs. And their own songs stood up alongside the, the, the people that they were covering. So I, I kind of uh, befriended all these people and they took me under their wing and helped mentor me about songwriting and, and uh, it was a really fertile time for me because at the same time that I was studying soul music and learning how to sing soul music and blues and how to play blues guitar and, 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 and rock and roll, there was this more tender singer-songwriter kind of side going on as well that has, has been a big part of everything I've done since. And I love that last week that you sang I've Been Loving You Too Long which speaks to what you just referenced. I've been loving you too long. To stop there. Otis Redding was, if not my favorite singer, I don't know who I would put above him. Uh, and so just, you know, it's intimidating to sing a song like that, but it's also uh, just beautiful. Like uh, I recorded that song with the Memphis Horns. Um, the Memphis Horns did an album years ago and they had Etta James and Robert Cray and Leon Russell and Mavis Staples uh, and Bobby Womack and all these fantastic artists uh, recording with the Memphis Horns. And, and when they asked me what I wanted to do, I said, uh, I want to do, I've been loving you too long. And I remember Wayne Jackson, well, wow, I take some balls. I'm like, well, I draw the line there. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do try a little tenderness. <laughs> You know, um, we have, we all have to draw the line of what we won't do, you know. But Otis Redding, to me, is just the embodiment, the, the epitome of, of uh, emotional delivery in soul singing. You know, it's just fantastic. And, and uh, so it all kind of came back singing that song uh, and having that great band and horn section behind us. It was great. Mm, fantastic stuff. 
So, Warren, let's let's talk about uh, two names that are seminal parts of your history, give or take when you're around 20 years old, and Dickie Betts and Greg Allman find their way into your life and you into theirs. How did you first meet Dickie and Greg? Well, I had, through some weird chance encounter, I had met uh, this guy, Mickey Hayes, who was playing bass with David Allen Coe. And I was playing at this club, which was the same club that Caesar's Parlor was in, but it was about eight names later. Uh, they kept shutting down clubs and opening another one in the same building. And I was playing there one night and uh, met him. And he said that uh, David Allen Coe was looking for a guitar player. And I was 19 and I wasn't uh, sure what was going on in my life. I was kind of at this crossroads and didn't know what I wanted to do. And so a few months later, they called and offered me a, a, a job. And I didn't really know much about him or his music. I just knew that it was a step up from where I was at the time. So I, uh, I flew to Baton Rouge on Christmas Eve and started playing with him, no rehearsal, just walked on stage and started playing music that I had never heard before. Uh, I didn't realize until I got there that they didn't have a guitar player. It was me or nobody. So uh, when I walked on stage, uh, I had this intimidating feeling of knowing that the entire audience knew the songs and I didn't. Uh, it, was, it was pretty bizarre. So it'd be uh, trial by fire, I guess. So uh, a, a few months after that, uh, I went in the studio with with Co to make uh, one of the several records that I played on with him. And he knew that I was a big Allman Brothers fan. And I had turned 20 at this point, I think. And the Allman Brothers were in Nashville recording and so he sent a limousine to their studio to pick them up after the show and bring them I mean, after their, their sessions and bring them to our studio. And in hindsight, uh, I know that he did it just to impress me, you know, that he, he knew what a big Allman Brothers fan I was, and he thought it would really impress the new kid if I, if I did this. And so I hung out with, uh, with Dickie Betts and, and Greg Allman and Don Johnson, who introduced himself as an unemployed actor, and uh, Guy Clark, the great songwriter who passed away not, not too long ago. And uh, I had some really heartfelt conversations with Greg, who I had just met for the first time. Uh, he played Queen of Hearts for me on the piano in the studio, and I was just knocked out. Uh, and then Dickie and myself and Guy Clark stayed up for hours passing guitars around and singing songs. Uh, it was just this, this wonderful feeling. I didn't know that it would lead to anything. And then I, I guess a year or two passed by and uh, Dickie asked me to sit in with his band when the Allman Brothers had broken up and he was playing with this band BHLT, Betts Hall Lavelle Trucks and with Jimmy Hall and, uh, and Chuck Lavelle and Butch Trucks. And I got up and sat in with him. And then, you know, we kind of stayed in touch a little bit. 
and then a few years later, the bass player in his band, Marty Prevett, had been kind of uh, uh, prodding Dickie to bring me into his current band at that time. Um, and they had not made a move in that direction yet. And then I got a call from this woman named Kim Morrison, who books background singers for sessions in Nashville. And she called me and said, uh, do you want to sing background on Dickie Betts's record? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. And so I showed up at the studio and, and uh, Dickie was uh, like, hey, you got a guitar? I said, no, and, uh, but it kind of planted a, a seed. And then a few weeks later, he called me and said, uh, I want you to join my band. Uh, and so that, was kind of the short version of how that whole thing came about. I, I joined Dickie's band for two, two and a half years or something, and then they decided to put the Allman Brothers back together, and they called me and said, uh, we're reforming and we want you to join. Initially, when you joined, it was only supposed to be for a short period of time, wasn't it? It was a, a reunion show for the 20th anniversary. I mean, a reunion tour. They had released the Dreams box set, which was celebrating 20 years of the Allman Brothers. Uh, but they, the plan was to only do <clears throat> one year. Uh, there were no plans beyond that. But I think everybody was shocked at the chemistry that this new band had with the all the original members plus myself and Alan Woody and, and Johnny Neal uh, from the very beginning of rehearsal it sounded like the Allman Brothers and that's something that had been missing in the past few years uh, toward the end before they had broken up the 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 old sound that they had going all the way back to 69 they had gotten further and further and further away from that and I remember uh, Dickie and I having a, a conversation where he basically said, we need to go back to 69, 70, 71. If we can capture that vibe, we can do whatever we want, but we got to first see if we can do that. Uh, and, and he was exactly right. And it, it just kind of started this fire. The Allman Brothers caught fire again and based on this this new chemistry that was happening and the original members were playing together great and getting along great and uh it was a very successful reunion so we did it again and again and again and for me it wound up being 25 years and ended right where you were just last week at the beacon theater yeah everything everything happens at the beacon theater <laughs> Amazing. So you mentioned his name, but we can't talk to you without talking about Alan Woody. Woody was uh, 
my comrade in arms, you know, he, he and I, uh, he and I and Greg Allman shared a tour bus, uh, on tour with the Allman brothers. And, uh, it was the bus where we were always laughing and partying and listening to music. And, and, uh, the other bus was, uh, a little more subdued, <laughs> I must say. Um, but Woody was just a larger than life character. He's one of the funniest people I ever met. A uh, great instinctual bass player. Uh, I've seen that guy play music that he had no idea how it went and play it as convincingly as if he had studied it. You know, he was just a, a great improviser and, and, a, and a great instinctual player uh, and w just fantastic bass player and, and personality we became huge friends on the road together and uh i think somebody told me we played over 1200 shows together um between government mule and the allman brothers we formed government mule uh as a side project you know me and him and greg riding down the road on the tour bus listening to hendrix or cream or some trio and Woody said, you know, man, nobody's doing this uh, anymore. This is like a void in rock music these days. Uh, he said, me and you and the right drummer could pull that off. And I thought about Matt Apps, who I had met in Dickie Betts's band. So we called Matt and said, hey, we're going to be in L.A. next month. Uh, let's get together and jam and talk about maybe doing a, a side project, but more more in the beginning, it was just going to be like an experimental record, maybe a short tour. It wasn't meant to become a band. It definitely wasn't meant to stay together for 10, 20, 30 years, you know, but uh, it, it kind of caught fire as well. And so uh, the next thing you know, Government Mule was a real band. We'll jump around a little bit here, but uh, Government Mule is about to go back on the road. I see you got a big tour in America. And then uh, the heavy load tour over in Europe. That's got to be hugely exciting for you to get back on the road. Yeah. Um, you know, it's uh, with the exception of nine weeks that we did successfully last year and managed for no one uh, to get COVID. Um, other than that, it'll be about two and a half years uh, of us not being able to work uh, in a, an official capacity. Now, the good news is during that time period, we made two records, one of which is uh, Heavy Load Blues, which is out now, and another record that we're hoping to put out October, November uh, of this year, that it's more of a, a rock record, more similar to what people would expect for the next Government Mule record. Um, it seemed like the only way to utilize our time, that we couldn't travel, we couldn't perform. Uh, but once we were all vaccinated and felt good enough to get back with the, the four of us in the studio together, we took advantage of that. So it's very exciting to think about being back on the road again. Um, it, it's It's been long overdue for sure. And I thought it was so interesting that for someone who's such a fan of the blues and aficionado of the blues. It wasn't until this last record that you ever recorded sort of a straight blues record. I've wanted to do a, 
a traditional, so to speak, blues album for a long, long time. I, I've had it on my list of things to do. And I didn't know if it was going to eventually wind up being a solo album uh, or something I did with uh, a few different friends and we all got together and, and made a, re a blues record or a government mule blues record. But COVID kind of brought out this opportunity for us to make a government mule uh, blues album. And my wife, Stephanie, and I were talking, she's government mules manager. And we were talking about uh, how to proceed and that we needed to get back into the studio. And she said, well, what do you think about government mule making a blues record? And uh, I thought, well, that that's great. That would kind of solve the, the question of, uh, is it going to be a solo record? Is it going to be a mule record? Uh, but, but I would also want to record two records at the same time, because the one thing that I got in a positive way from COVID and quarantine and lockdown and all that stuff is I wrote a ton of music. So I had all this new music that I wanted to record. So the blues album I knew was going to be a lot of cover songs, you know, Howlin' Wolf and Elmore James and, and, uh, Albert King and Muddy Waters and, and, you know, but I also had written a handful of original blues songs, which is rare. I don't write many, uh, what I consider to be traditional blues songs, but during lockdown I had. So I thought, well, let's go make two records. Uh, so we decided that we wanted to make two records that sounded completely different from each other, which would require finding a studio with two different rooms where we could set up a bunch of old small blues equipment in one room and all of our normal government mule toys in another bigger room. And so we found that place, a power station in New England, and we would go in every day and work on new mule songs from the time we got there to about nine at night. And then we would take a break and go over into the blues room and play blues for the rest of the night. And that was our daily routine. And it was, it was fantastic. It turned out to be a way of shutting our brains off, uh, between nine and 10 AM, uh, nine and 10 PM and just playing blues, uh, which the, the key to playing blues the best you can is to not think. Uh, and so that's, after we've been thinking all day long, let's go play some blues. And it, it was, uh, it was the right solution to that dilemma. Fantastic. So Warren, you're in a, uh, a special place as someone who's as creative as you are, as prolific as you are, who stood on all the great stages around the world. Folks like me, let's call us regular people. We can't understand how someone can walk around with a song for 10, 20, 30 years, have it in the back of their head, and then at some point dig into that memory archive and pull it out. Some of the songs that you've been doing have been things that you've been carrying around in different forms for years. How does that work? How do you keep track of stuff? Do you have notes? Is it just in your head? Is it something that you think about? And sometimes you may never get to it. Well, sometimes, like with the blues record, you do get to it. Well, uh, some of the songs I have demos of that I recorded at some point or uh, a work tape, which uh, I define as being 
a little less uh, quality than a demo. Uh, it could be just me into a tape recorder or something with an acoustic guitar or something. These days, you can even do it with your phone so you don't forget it. But in, in the old days, I used to have this theory that if it's good, I'm not going to forget it. And for for the most part, that seemed to work. I'm sure I lost a couple here and there that I wish I still had. But, you know, uh, all these years later, decades later, I don't trust myself to remember everything. So I, I try to document it as much as I can. Um, you know, you had talked about Ashes and Dust, the record that I made with uh, Railroad Earth. There were several songs on that record that were 10, 20, even 30 years old that I had been wanting to record my entire life. I just never had the right reason because those songs didn't sound like Government Mule songs. They didn't sound like Allman Brothers songs. They didn't sound like songs from uh, either of my prior studio records. So when I finally made a record that was paying tribute to the singer-songwriter phase that we discussed earlier, I thought, great, I can pull out some of these tunes that I've always wanted to record but never had a reason. Started working here when I was 21 Summer of 56, my life had just begun Back then this place was some place to be Thought I could grow with the company Never took a down You know, uh, I think I always looked at it like some of these songs were meant for someone else to record, not for me. Uh, and then eventually if, if the right reason comes up for me to do it and I feel like it's something I can do justice, justice to uh, vocally, then, I, then I'm into it. But I write a lot of songs that I would much prefer to hear someone else sing you know uh I, I try to just write for the sake of the song and when it's over think about where it could go or who could do it or what kind of project i could do it uh in but you know there are a lot of songs that i've written that sound so different from anything i've ever recorded i don't know that i will ever have the right reason to release them so to speak but you know every song you write makes you a better songwriter. So, uh, you know, it, sometimes I look at it like it's just an, an exercise uh, in, in songwriting. Even if it turned out fantastic and nobody hears it, I still have to be proud of it in my own way. You know? Well, I, I love that Ashes and Dust record. And when I listened to it um, years ago, I think it came out about 2015. I remember that doesn't sound like a Warren Haynes record, but it is a Warren Haynes record. It absolutely reflects uh, one side of me that has been with me my entire life. Um, but it's a side that I've never been able to represent until now. You know, now when I do solo shows uh, by myself, I can pull out those songs. And, and even uh, a lot of the people in my audience, whether they or Mule fans or Almond Brothers fans or, or fans of my solo work or whatever, they've come to kind of realize and understand that 
my stuff goes all over the map. And so if, if I play a blues song one minute and a folk inspired song the next minute, that's just part of, of, of what it is. And I love the fact that I have I've been able to develop an audience that uh, for the most part kind of has a similar uh, taste, uh, you know, as far as, you know, I think you find most real music fans have a broad spectrum of music that they listen to. And if you looked in somebody's collection, you might be amazed uh, how all over the map it can be. And so musicians are no exception. We might be even a little more that way, but I think people that take music seriously will surprise you with their uh, diversity and taste. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I read, uh, I know you've played everywhere, but I guess one of your favorites I've read is Red Rocks. Is that right? Oh yeah, I love Red Rocks. Yeah, I've never had a bad show there. Yeah, that was the very first show I ever saw about 40 years ago was at Red Rocks. It was the Blues Brothers Band, which as you recall, was quite a talented group of musicians. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, amazing. So uh, we talked a little about Alan Woody and a little bit about Greg Allman. 1995, another icon of music passes and leaves us, the great Jerry Garcia. And that kicks off a long affiliation between you and members of the dead. How did that all first come about? Uh, I got a call from Phil Lesh in the late 90s um saying that he had made a list of musicians that uh, a qu quite a long list of, of musicians that he wanted to work with and that i was one of those people and was i interested in coming to california for a few days of rehearsal and a few shows and i said absolutely i, I would love to do that and that was the beginning of a of a, a long friendship and, and musical relationship uh, that still goes on today. So it was through Phil that I met all those guys. Um, it was kind of a, a bizarre circumstance because in the beginning, all the people that he was inviting uh, to be part of this uh, revolving door, uh, they were all really talented musicians, but he was asking all them to bring their own interpretations of uh, Grateful Dead music and, and Garcia's music to the table. He didn't want anybody to play like Jerry. He didn't want anybody to sing like Jerry. He didn't want any of the, the arrangements or the interpretations or the approaches to be traditionally something that the dead had done in the past. He wanted all to be reinventions. And I thought that was a really fresh bold, uh, innovative kind of idea. So the first several years that I played with Phil, it was really important to not play anything similar to the way Jerry had played it in the past. And uh, I love that. Uh, and also for me, it was perfect because I didn't become a Grateful Dead fan till early 90s. You know, I, I saw the Grateful Dead one time and 1979, I think. Uh, but I w wasn't what I would call a big fan back then. I heard that music in the background. My oldest brother had some dead records and some Garcia solo records. And there was some bands around town that played that music. But 
for whatever reason, when a lot of people were getting on that train, I was more in the blues and jazz kind of world and, and, and didn't discover it until somewhere early nineties, it dawned on me how many great songs they had. Uh, I, I think I had missed the part uh, of how great the songs were and how many of them, I don't, I can't even think of another band that has that big of a catalog of, of fantastically written songs. And that's, even though their their chemistry and their approach to improvisation uh, is huge in the, in the music world, I think the song catalog is even bigger. I think uh, that body of work is going to remain. And so it was great to approach those songs with a, a different kind of mindset, you know. Now, fast forward, when they asked me to be part of what they called the dead, um, they wanted to interpret this stuff a little more similarly to the, the way it had been done in the past, but still uh, in the same way that the Allman Brothers didn't want me to sound like Dwayne Allman, they didn't want me to sound like Jerry Garcia, you know, and in both cases, I was very happy and impressed with the fact that they said, we hired you to be you and we want you to be yourself. And however much uh, from the Allman Brothers standpoint, however much of Dwayne Allman's influence I chose to show was my business. And the same with the dead, however much of Jerry's influence I chose to show was my business, but they would never ask me to play more or less like Dwayne or more or less like Jerry. And, and I think that's one of the reasons that it was enticing for me and, and, uh, and such a wonderful position to be in because I, I was able to be myself and not have someone telling me what they expected. agree with you on the depth of the song catalog and that various members of the band still going today. I mean, I just saw the clip, I'm sure you saw it too, that the Stones are going back out 60 years now. I mean, that, that's incredible. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, unprecedented. You know, this has never happened before. Um, and, you know, I don't think any of us could ever imagine that it would would be like this that uh, a band that started in 1961 or whatever would still be doing huge venues and and having these amazing audiences that range from kids to great grandparents you know it's uh, it's stunning it really is I, I agree with you so we talked a little bit on the top about um, the Love Rock show you just did with Keith Richards and his band. Um, but I'd love to talk about something that you started. One of my great joys in life was I got a chance to spend some time with uh, Jimmy Carter, who I think, I hope history will view more kindly as a president. And yeah. he started something that I know is near and dear to you, Habitat for Humanity. 
I'd love to talk about you there, what you've done in Asheville with the Christmas Jam. I, I think it's just an unbelievable story and would love to help you tell it to a bigger audience. Well, I, I agree with you about Jimmy Carter. I think uh, he was a fantastic president that uh, propaganda has not been kind to, but history will be. And uh, I think a lot of times a, a, a great president can be judged on what they do after they're out of office. And if you look at what Jimmy Carter's done, it's it's pretty fantastic. Um, I started Christmas Jam in 1988 as a small little event in a club with all local musicians. I had just joined Dickie Betts' band, and it was a chance for all the local musicians to get together and jam at the only time of the year that we were all around, which was the Christmas holidays. So we would uh, get together and, and play and raise a small amount of money and pick a charity and donate the money to charity. To give you an indication of how long ago that is, in the early days, one of the charities was Vietnam Vets. This is like pre-Gulf War. Uh, so we didn't realize at the time it was going to keep going. So every year we would discuss if we were going to do it again and uh, did it be okay, what charity are we going to use? And then one of the years we stumbled onto Habitat and I, uh, being a big fan of Jimmy Carter myself, I just thought that one makes the most sense. So we, we stayed with Habitat for years and years and years. Uh, and so if we fast forward a few years, there was, it, it went, started in one club, went to a bigger club, went to a bigger club. And then one year, uh, we were starting to get, you know, people like Derek trucks and Kevin Kenny and Alan Woody, uh, toy Caldwell from the Marshall Tucker band, Bobby keys from the Rolling Stones. Uh, people like that were starting to uh, be part of it. Uh, Edwin McCain. Um, so it was becoming a little less local, uh, a little bigger profile. And so one of the years that Derek Trucks uh, was there and Alan Woody drove his yellow pickup truck from Nashville to be there like he always did. Uh, somebody stole... Derek's guitar out of the dressing room because it was so unprotected because the security was so terrible and it was just a poorly organized event. And my wife, Stephanie, who is very organized said, okay, that's it. We're going to make this a national event. We're going to move it to a bigger uh, venue and we're going to start reaching out to people uh, on a larger level and, and just take it to the next step, you know? And so we moved it to the Thomas Wolfe Auditorium, which holds like 2,400. And we did it there for two or three years. And then the, the last year we were there, they turned uh, a couple of thousand people away. And so we moved it to what I grew up referring to as the Civic Center, which has been a million things now. Uh, at we moved it there and it's been there ever since. And, uh, you know, we've raised several million dollars for, for Habitat and, you know, Dave Matthews, widespread panic guys from fish, the almond brothers, uh, 
you know, Phil Lesh and, and, and Bob Weir have been there many times. Uh, so many people have been part of it. I mean, from like Branford Marsalis to John Schofield to uh, uh, Ralph Stanley, Hot Tuna. It, it's, it's just so diverse and, and, and crazy. The, a lot of New Orleans folks, Neville brothers, uh, Art, Art Neville celebrated his, uh, was in his, not his 75th, his, his anniversary of 50 years as a recording artist, I think we, we celebrated there. But it's just been uh, such a wonderful thing. And I'm glad that you brought it up because uh, we're really trying to bring it back. Uh, it's gone away for the last three years. The last one we did was the 30th anniversary uh, with Dave Grohl and Eric Church and Joe Bonamassa and uh, Jim James. It was a, a wonderful lineup. And then we decided to take the next year off and kind of regroup and then COVID hit. And so the last two years, we haven't been able to do it and really trying hard to bring it back now. So uh, wish me luck with that. Uh, I do. I do. And uh, uh, just uh, extraordinary uh, effort. And, you know, you're still a young guy. You mention all these names through history. Uh, but I think we'll be remembered and you'll be remembered, Warren, as much for what you've done there, you know, to help people who need help, uh, who will never know uh, than what you've done on stage in front of literally millions. Well, the thing that I love about Habitat is that they build homes for people that can't afford houses. Uh and they get the community involved, uh, our audience gets involved, the staff members, even some artists come by and are part of the whole raising the, the house process and we meet the families and stuff. And when I started seeing it up close and personal, it really hit me hard. Uh, and I think also the fact that it's so easy as a musician to give back because we're just doing what we do anyway. Musicians love to play. Uh, so, you know, I always joke around that when, when we're on tour, it's being away from your family and traveling and sleeping in hotels and eating crappy food at 3 a.m. That's what you're getting paid for. Uh, walking on stage and playing for three hours, that's the payoff, you know. So, and, and really, I think most musicians look at it that way anyway that that we love to play so if we can turn something as simple as playing music which we do almost every day of our lives if we can turn that into building homes for families that can't afford them uh, that, that's kind of a, a, a no-brainer you know so so beautifully said warren so you've done it all you've played with everybody you've been on every stage are there things warren when you lay awake at night and you think about here's something I haven't done that I still want to do that's on your bucket list. Um, I've never played Royal Albert Hall uh, in London. I went there to see Eric Clapton a few years ago and was able to experience that vibe. Um, and I've never done Saturday Night Live, which I always wanted to do. Um, I, I've been so fortunate that people I wanted to work with. I've had a chance to at least do something big or small 
with. Uh, there's still a, a, a small list of people that I would love to work with. And the same with the shows like you're talking about. You know, the last thing I can do is complain because I've been so fortunate in that regard. But, the, you know, there is a, a, a small list of things that I would still like to be able to check off. Uh, but I, I can't complain. That's fantastic. So just to wrap, Warren, you've been such a delight to talk to. Uh, you're on the road all the time. Sometimes things go wrong and something really funny happens. You've got to have some great stories from the road where something unexpected happened or something went wrong. Without telling any tales out of school, do you have a favorite story from the road? <laughs> well, let's start by saying all my favorite ones I can't tell, but uh, uh, think about that. When I was uh, in, in David Allen Coe's band, we went to Europe. I had never been to Europe. Uh, this was 1983. I was 22, I think. And, uh, and we were traveling on a bus together with uh, uh, Steve Young, the songwriter that wrote uh, Seven Bridges Road and, and wrote Lonesome Ornery Mean for Waylon Jennings. Steve just passed away recently and our whole band and crew and Steve were, were traveling together on the same bus. And the bus driver informed us that in the middle of the night, we were going to be going past Stonehenge and that uh, he was going to pull over. And if we wanted to check it out, we could. And so I don't know why we were so gullible, but, uh, or another word would be stupid, I guess, but about 4 a.m. or something, uh, I woke up on the bus and we were at Stonehenge and the driver said, you know, go in and check it out. He was a British driver. We had no reason to think that uh, he didn't know what he was talking about. Well, what about the fence? Well, just hop over it, you know. So we climbed over the fence and, and went into Stonehenge and those of us who had been asleep were just waking up and those of us who were still awake uh, were drunk or high and somebody climbed up on the one of the rocks and was taking a leak off one of the rocks and and looking back it all seemed so stupid but we uh, we saw flashlights coming toward us and realized oh shit this is the cops and we're being busted. Uh, so the cops came up and asked us what we were doing. They were mostly concerned because there had been vandalism and graffiti and stuff. And since we weren't guilty of that, they let us go, but they were upset. And uh, I remember one of the cops, uh, we, we said, we didn't know we, we couldn't do this, you know? And he, one of the cops said, uh, well, what did you think the fence was for, mate? So you wouldn't steal the bloody rocks. Uh, and in in hindsight, you know, I mean, they let us go, but what a what a blunder! But I, I'll never forget that that moment. It was pretty stupid, but pretty hilarious. That's a great story. I, I'm sure there's many you can't tell, so I'm glad we found one I, that we that you could. Yeah. 
most of them I can't tell. I, I would love to, but cannot. No, that's that's probably best left unsaid. Well, Warren, thank you so much for doing this. It was a joy to talk to you, and uh, I can't wait to see you again when Government Mule's on stage here in New York, and exciting that you're going back to Europe, and uh, continue to wish you good health and every success. You're a jewel, and uh, uh, I can't tell you what a privilege it was to get to spend some time with you. Well, thank you. My pleasure. I, I enjoyed it.